the way we do things today is as obsolete as the steamship or the telegraph operator, but those shelters have prevented us from realizing it's obsolete yet. And so unless we're investing now in enabling all those experiments from the bottom up, the organizations that don't are going to have a real shock to their systems. Yeah, but what about all the decision makers that would rather pay some top five consultancy to do an innovation program with them? Programs that, if you don't mind my saying this, always fail because they're asking the wrong people. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein. And today, this episode is really, really cool. You know, I think about what is this Sidcast thing all about? And yes, it's, you know, great conversations that I'm having, that I'm sharing with you. There's lots of lessons learned. There's lots of things that we discover. We learn about careers. We learn about zigging and zagging to go back to Philippe Bourguignon's idea from an earlier season. We also take on change. The importance, the criticality of change, whether it's someone in business trying to change their organization to be more successful, whether it's someone wanting to or trying to create something new in the creative arts, in entertainment, for example, or whether it's an entrepreneur. And I've talked to a bunch of entrepreneurs, of course, in previous episodes who are trying to solve a problem in a new way. But if we were to elevate the challenge and say, if we want change, if we want creativity, if we want to solve problems, intractable, difficult problems, or even problems that deserve to be solved because we have a better solution, how do we do it? And how might we democratize such an effort? How might we make it easier for people around the world to learn and grasp and get the tools to be able to change and adapt and innovate and be that entrepreneur? And that's what my guest on this episode of the Sidcast has been dedicating his life to Alejandro Juarez Crawford. Alejandro is the co-founder and CEO of Rebel Base. Here is how Alejandro and his partners describe what Rebel Base is all about on their website. Rebel Base was built to provide tools to everyday people so that they can replace what's failing and build what's next. Our mission is to show teams how to tackle problems the way entrepreneurs do by launching new solutions. We believe that in today's world to survive means to reinvent, not from the top down, but throughout a dynamic and empowered community. A lot of interesting words in there, but you know, the core idea is kind of like a revolution, isn't it? Not that long ago, I had David Johnson on as my guest on the Sidcast. We were talking about climate change and design thinking and how difficult um, how difficult it is to gain traction in particular around climate change. And David had this idea of empowering a billion activists on climate change. And it's a great idea. We love that idea. But now imagine that those billion activists are given the tools, learn the tools where they can coordinate, they can work together, they can develop the project management skills, frankly, that you're going to need to actually make a difference. And that's what Rebel Base does. That's what Alejandro Crawford is all about. He teaches in the Bard MBA program. He's worked in consulting for a number of years. Has a BA at Cornell. He has an MBA from the Tuck School of Dartmouth. Yes, another one of my genius former students. And, and he's led Rebel Base 
as it's really commercializing a library of educational modules that they've developed. They're cloud-based interactive tools, and he and his team, they're doing it globally, including places like Bangladesh and others. Alejandro is a real thinker, and so it's fun to talk to him because we're talking about these issues, and he draws on so many examples and stories and other great thinkers to make his point, which is just fun. It's fun to listen to. It's fun to engage in. But most importantly, what he's been doing is making a difference. I love entrepreneurs. I love people that create. I love people that try to change things, that try to make things better. I'm all about impact. That's actually why, in many ways, I'm doing this podcast in the first place. Another type of impact, you know, that expression, multiple streams of impact. And this is another one that goes beyond the books and the teaching and the research and the media and the writing and everything else. And one of the joys of doing this is being able to bring people like Alejandro Crawford to a wider audience that needs to hear about this, needs to engage in this. And so we have this great conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it. I know you're going to take a lot of notes, learn a lot about Rebel Base, but about Alejandro. It's a fun journey. But at the end of the day, if we care about changing anything, then we need to have the tools to be able to do it. And Rebel Base and Alejandro are really all about that. So here's Alejandro's story and the story of Rebel Base on the SIDCast. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein. My guest today is Alejandro Crawford. Hello, Alejandro. Sid, greetings. Pleasure to be here. I'm glad we're able to make this work. We'll do a little shout out to your friend and my former student, Amin Plavin, who made the connection between the two of us. And I'll do a double shout out for her because she went on to get a PhD, which for MBA students to get PhDs is not nearly as common as I would like it to be. And so I'm proud of the work that she's done to join the academic community and make an impact in that way. So that's the shout out to her, but we're going to talk about you, Alejandro. <laughs> well, if it provides any segue, I have the privilege of having Meme in as a guest speaker. I work with a number of managers at the New York Power Authority who are developing innovations, mostly sustainability innovations. And so we have the pleasure of bringing Meme in to talk about the research and the frameworks that she's working on that I think will be very useful to them. It's not surprising that she's playing that type of role for some of the work you're doing. There's a lot to talk about, but I want to start close to now. It's not exactly now, but close to now, which is Rebel Base and what you've created. Could you share what this idea is, what you're trying to accomplish with it? Up until today, if you see something and it's backwards, it's broken whether it's the way transportation works in your city or the way agriculture works in your state. And you're a participant or an observer and you say, this is stupid the way this works. What have your options been, Sid? Well, you can try to get the powers that be to change it traditionally. You might try to join it and say, hey, this is the way it works. At least let me rent out my days and take a lucrative place in this. But up until now, it's been very difficult for regular people to think that they could launch an experiment in how to make it work better. And RebelBase makes that possible. RebelBase democratizes and accelerates bottom-up innovation by enabling people who understand problems to launch experiments that could become solutions. And if that sounds a little highfalutin, the bottom line is that we have from folks who've been working in their industry to decades to students who are teenagers. We have folks who really are launching experiments and then learning by doing. What Rebel Base provides is a digital playground and structure and set of connections where instead of connecting around what's already been done the way every other platform we have does, it allows you 
to collaborate, to launch emerging solutions and build the muscles to do that in your community, in your career, and in your life. So this is very cool. And maybe you could share an example or two of some of the ways some of the users have been experimenting. Absolutely. So we've had these films come out. Actually, they're in semifinal cut right now. They're about to come out. That a university network has created where there's an innovator in Dhaka, in Bangladesh, named Sebastian Kroll. And Sebastian is himself has become quite well known for his work on peer-to-peer solar, where in Bangladesh, he's enabling folks to essentially make solar into a peer-to-peer phenomenon and then deal with the sustainability of batteries in rickshaws, in electrically powered rickshaws. But Sebastian will say, that's not enough what I'm doing. I need to enable lots of people to create their own experiments to make things work. And not only that, we can't just do that for a few people in Silicon Valley that want to get their dry cleaning delivered more conveniently to their car window or something. We need to do it with folks that are dealing with rolling blackouts and are dealing with rising waters and are dealing with problems that when I see one of these groups working on Rebel Base, often don't even know exist. So it starts with enabling people who understand problems that we might not, right? You started talking about me and myself. Well, I went to Tuck and that's important. And you teach there, but there are lots of people around the world that from the bottom up, we could enable them to create solutions. And that's what Rebel Base does using a digital platform. How does this work? What makes someone want to do this? Is it someone that's, like you said, you know, sees a problem and is fed up and says, I want to do something about this and somehow comes across this platform that you've created you and your team have created and said, wow, this is a perfect vehicle to help us to just get my frustrations out and try to do something. And maybe it'll work, maybe it won't work, maybe it'll make a little bit of progress. There are these tools that companies are adopting because democratizing innovation is not always at the top of the list for established companies. I happen to preach that type of thinking all the time, but I could tell you, I don't have to tell you because you know this, it's a little scary for most large companies. So let's first relate the fed up part to the large company problem and then get to the other half of what you're saying is that vehicle for doing it. So One of the things since we began this work, it's 14 countries now, that has blown me away is I have yet to find a user that isn't very fed up with something. We're all fed up and we're fed up for a number of reasons. The United States, we have a 40-year decline in dynamism where most of us are working for older companies with a slight exception to that rule during the pandemic. Most of us are fed up because some incumbent has locked into doing things in a suboptimal way. Even those, we were talking before the call about internet idealism, even those upstarts, right? You remember the old Apple ad, the upstart who's challenging 1984, those companies too have become incumbents. And we know that when incumbents get too safe, then the organizational side of what you just described, Sid, takes place. But there are four factors right now that are changing the pressures and the incentives on organizations. The first is what journalists likes to call the great resignation. What's underneath that from the research I've been able to do is young people fed up with the idea that they're just supposed to take a place, run out their days to solutions that seem broken and backwards to them. There's a sense, to put it in the terms that are coming up in the data, of wanting to be involved in projects with purpose. 
and to have some discretion over that. So the first pressure is that every organization is going to need to draw talent in this generation. And in order to get the best talent, organizations, I believe that there's evidence already that we're going to see increasing pressure on those organizations to provide opportunities to do bottom-up work. And I'm going to list these three others, and I can bullet them a bit, Sid, if that's helpful. The second is actually something that a fellow Tech alum, Eric Anderson, put into words after I was talking about it beautifully. He said, for the first time in our history, a knowledge worker doesn't have to get to London or Berlin or New York or San Francisco. A knowledge worker can be anywhere in the world where there's a broadband connection. And that is not a small change where, oh, great, we can do some telecommuting. That's a radical change in what kind of access you need geographically to be part of the team that creates the way we do things tomorrow. So if Eric's right, and I believe he is, that who gets to be a knowledge worker is radically changing, then there's a second kind of pressure. Because unless we enable distributed teams to examine how things work now and launch new ways of doing them, then so many of those large corporations that you deal with are going to be disrupted out of existence with their current models. There's a third pressure, which derives from the fourth industrial revolution. Many of today's jobs are going to be replaced by AI. All you need to do is get chauffeured by an EV or realize you've been talking to a bot to know that many of the jobs and not just blue collar jobs, but white collar jobs too, that we think of as safe will be replaced by AI. At the same time, we are going to decarbonize. Right now, it might seem like we're not because the incumbents are so powerful with the trillions in subsidies toward continuing to take fossil fuels out of the ground, but we must decarbonize. And because of that, as that pressure builds, we're going to radically change our supply chains, our business models in favor of circular models, the very way we do business. So if you think of these macro factors, which I would argue are bigger than the internet, bigger than the railroads and the canals, we're about to see this radical transformation. If you just think of the three I've listed in what motivates us, talent, what attracts talent, let's put it that way, who is involved in developing the way we do things, and these big shifts which change the throughput, they shorten the shelf life of the way we do something now and give advantage to folks involved in creative destruction. So the big idea is we need to democratize access to doing creative destruction, and not just because it's a good idea, but for organizations that would like to survive and thrive will need to innovate from the bottom up. So this is a compelling argument. But then I'm thinking of all these people saying, yeah, but like, where's the progress here? I mean, I know you can certainly have a bunch of examples from people that you've interacted with that you've supported that are customers of yours as well, or in your general ecosystem. But it's a big world and the incumbents and the inertia and the baby steps and things like Clay Christensen talked about that, you know, in a different era 25 years ago about disruption. It seems like on one hand, there's lots of disruption and change and everything's changing overnight. On the other hand, most systems in advanced economies seem to be pretty much the same as they have been. Well, the internet's not new at all. It's been integrated and continues to be integrated sometimes more effectively than other times. So I guess the question really is, how do you deal with the pessimists that just say, come on, I love this idea. I'm glad you're out there doing this, but I don't have 200 years to see something happen. 
first of all, we really don't have 200 years. And if there's a governing pressure that is going to lead that wave, right, you see a swell on the horizon, it seems like it's a swell for a long time. But then once that wave starts to crest, it happens very quickly. And the outside in pressure that is going to lead this to happen is we have less than a decade to radically change the way we're doing the things I'm talking about, whether it's the green shift or AI. So just to put that out there, you have organizations that have been sheltered from this. And you look at this in your work. There are lots of ways to shelter yourself. You can shelter yourself through regulatory mechanisms. So you're essentially keeping out the disruption. You can shelter yourself through market power, through locking in your way of doing things. But often when those barriers get breached, when the water is pressing on the dike, and it breaches, it happens very quickly. So that's a big grandiose statement, but let me be much more specific and anecdotal because I think the most interesting part of your question is, well, who are the people that are putting their necks out to democratize innovation, to do bottom up, and what is the advantage that they will gain thereby? Let me take a second with that because when you're talking about competitive dynamics, it's always about, are there ones that are doing this And does this give them an advantage? Mm -hmm. And the simple answer, we're fairly new at this, right? We commercialized just over a year ago. But the simple answer is that when you give folks access to these tools, access to tools that allow them to say, you know, it should work this way and create a real world experiment. And by real world, I mean, you've got a prototype and you've got a business model and you know how to make the case, et cetera, et cetera. When you give folks the tools to create those experiments, something dramatic happens. And I'll talk to you about some of the places it's happening in two seconds. But the dramatic thing that happens is that suddenly you've actually asked the person who understands the problem what needs to be solved. And guess what? The solutions from someone who sees the details are so much better than the solutions from the boys in the boardroom. So let's just say sort of two ideas. One is, and I can give you lots of detailed examples of this, the solutions are better. Let me give just one example of that so I put some flesh on those bones. So I was a consultant to a large nonprofit in Brooklyn, and we had been working with their leadership across programs to innovate in this sort of thing. But then we were beta testing some of these rebel-based tools. And we said, wait a minute, let's put this out to 600 employees and ask them what problems need to be solved. And Sid, it was extraordinary first that they came up with problems I hadn't just not thought of, I wouldn't have known to think of because I didn't understand the details of the people that they serve and their needs. And often these were problems where in the abstract, they didn't exist. In the abstract, the solutions were there, but they weren't designed in the sense of design thinking to be usable by the people they were serving. But the folks who created the solutions knew the needs of the people they were serving. And we gave them the easier part. We gave them the tools to interview users and create brands and prototype solutions and develop cost models. Now, those things might sound hard, but if there's one thing we've learned, it's that they can be demystified. This is a three-part build. So one is just the knowledge is there about what should be done differently. Two is we have now conclusively shown, and I don't mean we've shown this with millions of users yet, but enough users in enough places that we can say that when you give people a step-by-step guided way to learn how to do innovation as they do it, then they learn it by doing it. Because the knowledge is only 10% in the frameworks and the tools that we got them through. It's 90% in what they learn by using them. 
And so what we've made possible is what Eben Goodstein calls experiential MOOC, where for the first time, we're learning from experience by doing because we created the frameworks that allowed folks to collaborate, guided in an accessible way as they build something new and learn to make the case for it. And if you take those two things, then let's talk about the naysayers. So I'll give you three to four examples just to sort of map the territory here. There are five chambers of commerce in Europe. It was started by a brilliant woman named Ana Pajarón in a city called Terrassa that's in Spain that has always had its strength in apparel. Well, she and their chamber of commerce know that they need to be investing in their next source of jobs, of industry and that, because they're not gonna necessarily be an apparel leader forever. So Anna got together with chambers in four other European countries and developed, they just had their first competition, which ran on Rebelbase actually, with projects built on the software and there's mentorship that goes on there too. But they know, Anna knows that their whole industry there needed to be reinvented because Sid, let me just bracket this idea here as I get to the conclusion here, which is that the industries that I call ghost industries are already ghost industries. We just haven't experienced it yet. The way we do things today is as obsolete as the steamship or the telegraph operator, but those shelters have prevented us from realizing it's obsolete yet. And so unless we're investing now in enabling all this experience from the bottom up, the organizations that don't are going to have a real shock to their systems. The best skeptical point that you made is, yeah, but what about all the decision makers that would rather pay some top five consultancy to do an innovation program with them. Programs that, if you don't mind my saying this, always fail because they're asking the wrong people. And this is what all due respect to tech grads making their income doing that stuff. Keep at it, y'all. But it's gonna fail if you ask the usual suspects what needs to happen and how to do it. And frankly, even the Davosis of the world, they don't know which problems to solve or how to solve them unless we make this radically bottom up. So it's clear said, Sid, I don't mean just that we do a lot of interviewing of people and ask them what should happen and raise a lot of Kanban cards. I literally mean that we give a radically wider group of people the experience of doing innovation because it is only that experience of doing it recurringly that allows you to get good at it. So what do we do with those skeptics and naysayers? We focus on enabling the Anapajarons of the world. We focus on enabling the Riseboros of the world. That's the organization in Brooklyn I was talking about. We focus on enabling the new certificate that Open Society University Network. Now we just added Latin America. It's now all over the world in something like 10 regions. That's a certificate in making change. It has an entrepreneurial component that runs on Rebelbase. It has an intrapreneurial leading change component with a new tool set on Rebelbase. And we're adding in the spring a component on understanding these waves of change and the opportunities for disruption that are in them. When Open Society University Network does that, Suddenly, schools that are still giving you credits based on your professor's estimation of what you've been taught and then seeing if you have an exam on what some guy who talks like you or I has told you and whether you can say it back and maybe apply it in a canned case study. I mean, we're sending our grads out into the world with both hands tied behind their back when we do that. And so the short answer is there is enough of an increase, and you know the statistics, corporate venturing is growing quickly. It is going up the steep part of the curve now. Same with education, where more and more programs are doing incubators and accelerators and hackathons. And that industry 
already exists. There are consultants doing this in every part of the world, but what's been missing is a platform that makes it systematic. And look, to be very honest with you, Sid, I had no interest in being a tech entrepreneur. I was really happy with my lifestyle business where I had all, I took the jobs I wanted, made the money I wanted, and was a pretty happy person. But at some point, I can tell you exactly the point if you want the anecdote, we saw that in doing it the way we were doing it, one organization at a time, it would always be a drop in the bucket. And so we said, we need to create tools. And RoboBase is a B2B2C tool that enable any organization, whether it's MBM Africa working founders with founders in the African continent, or it's Oberlin College doing social entrepreneurship. We need to make sure that any organization that wants to be competitive can do bottom up. And the Fortune 500s are starting to knock on our door. That's the interesting thing. We're in a conversation right now with, I can't say who, but the top three company in an industry that has always thrived by keeping things the way they were. And this one of the top three, they've woken up to the fact that if they want to be survive and thrive over the next decade, they can't rely on that anymore because the dikes are going to get breached. So they're already talking to us about they want to test this season. And they're like, could you do this with 20,000 employees? The answer is yes, because these tools are scalable. Actually, real quick, what is that anecdote where you change your life to go and do this? And then I want to ask you a bit more about the issues related to big companies and entrepreneurship. Of course, I was running a consulting firm and I was very proud of our work. We had just done the work for training 16 cities for cities for financial empowerment. We just created this new pilot, which got all this USDA money to bring fresh food into food deserts. And this is really meaningful work. We've done a bunch of work for Capital One, blah, blah, blah. And I was a pretty happy camper in the sense that a lifestyle business is a beautiful thing, But I'd been on a panel at Columbia and it was with Deep D. Sharma, Kapoor, Michael Barnathan, and Tarek Pertieu. Those are entrepreneurs and coders and people who run programs for entrepreneurs. And on the panel, I remember the conversation afterwards. We said, we need to radically open this up. We were all saying the same thing. And we had that weird moment. We're like, well, it's great to say this to students at Columbia. So we made a choice and we said, we're going to design a program. It was called the Mountaintop Program. And we're going to pilot it next season in schools in the inner city. Lest it sound like I'm saying that as some kind of outsider do-gooder. This was on 101st Street, the street I grew up on in New York City. So I was no stranger to the paucity of opportunities to imagine if. And then on the other side of town, when I was a student at this free school in New York, actually where I first met Mim Plavin at Hunter College High School, I was volunteering as a senior in a local reading program on that same block. Well, fast forward in time, and we are bringing entrepreneurs and innovators into that classroom for something called the Dream Exchange. The Dream Exchange was really simple. It's not a Bob Dylan song, you can be in my dream if I can be in yours. It was that we would ask the students how they dreamt the world. And then we'd bring in an entrepreneur talking about how they had dreamt of something and tried to build it in real life. And there's this amazing, I call it the Peter Parker moment, Sid, where the students who had just been kind of going to class and in many cases pretty uninspired by some of their schoolwork would come alive to their powers. First to the opportunity, wait a minute, I could make something new. I could imagine the world differently. There's that quotation I always start courses with from Steve Jobs after he's been fired from Apple, where he says, the most important thing is the moment when you realize that everything around you that you call life was made up by people no smarter than you are, and you can change it. When students discover that, that's the Peter Parker moment. Whoa, I can sling a web. 
I can leap past a building. But then the more important moment isn't the discovery of power. It's the discovery of how hard it is to fight Dr. Octopus or whoever it is that Spider-Man is about to get killed by. And weirdly enough, our research shows, we do a lot of work on researching skills and mindset change by, from users of this platform because not every solution, not every experiment, I call them experiments for a reason, is gonna succeed. But what is happening is folks are building their muscles to do this by doing it. And the more important part of that Peter Parker moment is when you realize how hard it is to fight what you're trying to fight. In some cases, nigh impossible because you've got all this incumbency money that we talked about earlier and regulation and market power. But when you see how hard it is, here's the weird thing. That is when rebels, as we call them, really, as we call us, I'll include myself in that, really come alive to this is not the moment when they discover that they could imagine something differently, but when they work into it. And I do believe in the athletic analogy here. It's one thing to kind of watch the video about, you know, pickleball or something and think how much fun that would be. And there's lots of evidence that by watching a video, I actually think I got better and I didn't when I watched the video, right? <laughs> but it's when you actually start working on your swing that is brutally difficult, but a different kind of excitement begins as you see yourself sweating into that challenge, taking on harder and harder opponents and realizing that you're getting better and building those muscles as you do. To now bring it back home, speaking of Bob Dylan, to bring it all back home to my own story, we ran that program in inner city high school and innovation high school in East Harlem and in an after school program in Bushwick. I'll never forget the demo day. There was no air conditioning, but teachers were talking about lives transformed. Students had these projects which were blowing us away. And we all went out to dinner afterwards. The same folks I talked about and a bunch of others who'd come to help. And we had this strange combination of excitement and gratification on the one hand and deflation and demoralization on the other. Because we realized that this work was transformative. But we also saw that if we were gonna do it ourselves multiple afternoons a week, it would inevitably be a drop in the bucket and that need is everywhere. The people in the boardroom might not know it yet, but the talent that wants to work for them and the folks who currently work for them do know it and give those people half the chance to say, this is so stupid and backwards the way it works, let's develop an experiment. And the amazing thing is that entrepreneurship is not something for a few heroic, risky types. I now call this a process of experimentation, which I would argue most of us want to be a part of. If not as the person with the idea, then the person helping put flesh on its bones with our skills and with our participation. So long story short, it was that day mm -hmm. when we said, we need to create a toolkit that makes it possible for any organization to do this. and. We have, it's modular. Sometimes we've just done a little mini capital raise. And sometimes when we're talking to an investor, they say, well, how can you be doing this for education and corporate and community? Pick one thing and do that. And I get that, right? I've given that advice myself. But the truth is that to see a broken system and develop an experiment to replace it is something we need in our graduates, we need in our talent, in our employees, and we need in our leaders. So we are not willing to give this to just one of them, and the demand is there in all three. So I wanna talk about experimentation, which I love as an idea and as a way to live. The new curriculum that we created at Tuck includes kind of a two-week boot camp that involves lots and lots of other, the old orientation where you'd be hanging out and drinking beer all day, 
meeting people is now something. I mean, there's a little bit of that to be sure, because you got to meet people. You don't have to drink, but it goes with the territory a little too often. But there's a lot more to it. And one of the things we talk about is experimentation and how actually when you go back to school, so this is for any MBA, but it could be for anyone at any stage of life, but you go back to school, you have an incredible opportunity to experiment, to try something new. And if you just do what you've done before, what's the point? You're going to be losing the upside of this opportunity. What you're saying is almost generalizing way beyond this kind of inflection point of two years at school into life. You can keep on doing what you've always been doing, and that's fine for some people, maybe for most people, I don't know. But you can at any point in time start to do this experimentation mentality. It requires, however, a comfort level with failure, which as we both know, it's a big ask because people don't like failure. People are afraid of failure. All those cliches, they happen to be true. That's why people keep saying them. And for companies, not necessarily the Fortune 500 only, although they are perfect examples, if they're going to allow or enable or encourage experimentation, they also have to be prepared for failure and actually almost certainly a pretty high failure rate. It would be a really odd thing if, you know, half the experiments actually worked and made a positive impact. That'd be pretty amazing, actually, if that happened, because we know from entrepreneurship in general how many seemingly great entrepreneurial ideas actually don't work. So it's not that unusual. Jeff Bezos, no less, has talked about experimentation in the context of a giant company. I actually believe that he has created a culture in a very large company where experimentation is part of the DNA of that organization. It is the only one I've ever seen, not that I've gone to or studied or work with every company out there. I'm sure there's some others, but a company of this size. And just to go back a little bit, maybe... I don't know, three, four years ago, it was pre-pandemic, so four or five years ago, I don't know. Some senior people at Amazon got in touch with me asking me if I might be interested in running their executive education, internal executive education business. And who knows if I did that and got stock options, I could have been retired 10 times over, but I didn't want to do it because I love, absolutely love what I'm doing and I didn't want to be limited to one context. But when they were describing what Amazon was trying to do, it was kind of, and I don't know whether they'll say this today, but they said what Amazon's trying to do is redefine or create a new way of managing a very large organization. And they made the point that there is no management theory that works for a large company that enables ongoing, regular innovation, experimentation. It doesn't exist. There are exceptions here and there. There are some famous stories about companies like Gore Technology that has historically done things like this. But the fact that you have to kind of draw a tiny number of these anecdotes out of a hat from big companies tells you how rare it is. But I thought, well, that really is a cool idea because I'm not aware of a theory of management that enables an extremely big company, publicly traded company, no less, with those pressures that come with it, to be ongoing, experimenting, failing. I mean, they've been in the news, they're always in the news, but they were in the news, I think, for closing down one of their healthcare businesses at the same time as making or potentially making a very big acquisition in another aspect of healthcare. And ordinarily you see that and you say, well, where's the consistency? What are they thinking about? But in fact, they're experimenting. Anyway, that's a bit of a ramble about Amazon and about the concept of experimentation. I'll just throw that out there and see what your reaction might be to that. I actually think it's very rich. You know, the old Holden Caulfield idea that it's only by digressing that we figure out what we're trying to say. I would tease out five big points in what you've just said. The first has to do with how you maintain a culture of experimentation as you get large. And let's talk about Bezos. And during that, let's also talk about the relationship between big infrastructure and bottom-up experiments. 
Two, let's look at comfort with failure and break that down into components, including how we define failure, practice in failure, camaraderie related to it, and the incentives involved, circling back to the big company. Thirdly, let's look at what we mean by an experiment and unpack the idea that it has to be radically new. And I'm going to suggest that often, actually, the experimentation that most people do is taking things we already know work and figuring out how to do them in new places and new ways. So I want to touch on that in terms of everything from stratospheric aerosol injections to Jane Jacobs. And then fourthly, I thought it'd be really interesting to unpack your idea that there's no big theory of innovation. And what does it mean to go instead to Karl Popper's idea, which he derived from studying science, that it is what he called piecemeal work is how we do this as opposed to utopian and universalist solutions. And I think it's worth talking about here during Climate Week, the difference there between the big swings, again, solar geoengineering, and lots of little ones, and what my colleague who uses Rebel Base in DACA in the Earthshot panels this week. And then lastly, if we have time, let's talk about the ways in which we can take the old beer that we would have at Tuck and pick up on that breaking bread together in a 10-country context in ways that might not give me the flavor of the beer you're drinking, but can allow us to achieve that camaraderie. Because I would argue that when we assume that digital has to be flat and limited, that we may be just not using it very well. I love how you dissected that kind of ramble into an agenda. That's a real skill. Let's go for it. Well, the truth is what you presented is a threaded structure. And I think it's actually a great way of getting into the topic that Top-down thinking, right, central planning has its place. No ARPANET, no internet. And in fact, Bezos himself, or Bezos, it's a Cuban name, he said, and I think it was in a talk to one of his outer space enthusiast groups that he's into, I've read a quote from him saying, you know, we could never have generated this much value this quickly had it not been for the massive societal investments in infrastructure, things like the postal service. I mean, I live in hundreds of miles of woods but I can have an Amazon package of like a better microphone if you don't like the way I sound on this podcast tomorrow at my door in the woods. And Bezos, and he's talked about both himself and Zuckerberg in this light, has said what we did was we launched experiments taking advantage of those experiments, of those investments at the macro scale. So I think there's a real risk to your big theory point that we just say there's got to be one universal plan. That's nonsense. If you've been to a city that was just kind of planned into existence. They're horrible. I grew up in inner city New York and like all those things that popped up next to each other is extremely generative. And I'll get to that when we touch on Jane Jacobs in a moment. But let's start with good old Jeff. I'll never forget being at Tuck in 2001, if I'm getting my years. And I was reading analyst reports from the investment banks and they were panning Bezos. They were saying, do what you're good at, books, music, and video. That's your core competency, right? These folks had been trained on the big theories. Stick with mm -hmm. your core competency, Jeff. Why are you making garden hoses? All these investment bank reports were saying he's going to kill his company by investing in these massive warehouse liquidation centers and in selling. Why is the book music video guy going to sell garden hoses? It makes no sense, they were saying. Because the truth is, whatever you think of Jeff, he was willing to go against the common wisdom there. If he had listened to what your average business school case would have told him to do, 
he never would have created the everything store because he made a massive bet on those efficient distribution centers and the idea that we'd want to buy everything and everything through Amazon. Now, let us then move from that big idea to what it means to create a culture of experimentation. I think Amazon is a mixed bag. So we have a woman working with us who most recently, I think, worked for Amazon in Poland has a lot to say about what was right there. I think where Amazon can inhibit experimentation, so on the one hand, Amazon has created a distribution opportunity for lots of small players that would not otherwise have been able to reach their consumers. On the other hand, I think the risk with anyone that's successful is too much market power. So I would argue that there's the experimentation within the large organization, and then there's the ways in which we need to make sure that they don't inhibit experimentation around them. But let me bracket that because I think it takes us too far off topic. Let's just focus on if I want to build a culture of experimentation into my organization, how do I incentivize and create the culture of comfort with failure? And that's a big one because most of us have learned to be the A student. I was one of those, look, the only reason I ever had an educational opportunity was I used to get the high score on tests. Like I was good at tests, which after I helped a few people raise their GMATs by a couple hundred points to pay for my beer at Tuck, I figured out that this was a trick. It was like a card trick that we had learned, those of us who were good at tests. And it's just one that kind of nerd games I had loved playing from boyhood had been practicing those kinds of tricks. Why am I emphasizing those tricks? Because comfort with failure is itself a trainable mentality. And here's why I can say this with a certain amount of confidence. On Monday, I will be with students in Belarus, literally right now through a university in exile in Lithuania, in the West Bank, literally under the West Bank wall. We're working, although it's against the government of a certain large Asian country doesn't want this to happen. We're working to find ways to include that country in this and everywhere in between all the way through to our friends in Dhaka that I talked about. So in 10 parts of the world, we are going to be having sessions where students present their market sizing or their brand or their financials and then get torn apart by their peers and by experts from all over the world. Now, let's think culturally about this for a second. In face-saving cultures or in cultures of perfectionism, like me with my wanting to get the perfect score on the GRE or something, not really wanting to, those people, oh my goodness, I got one wrong, mom. That's something that we internalize very early. So how do you break people out of that? Well, like any performative skill, you have to give them experience of succeeding otherwise. And that is what we structure things to do. Let me give you a few nitty gritty examples. And I could go on for two hours about these because we work so hard at it in our tool set. But one of them is that every rebel base, we call it a project builder. So we have these set of modules which you publish your answers to it. And it's important to know that you choose at what level you publish. If it's a work in progress or your secret sauce, you can publish it only to your team. And folks that you've invited become support members, like a mentor or advisor. If you're in a cohort, such as an incubator or an innovation lab or a course, you can publish it just to that cohort for purposes of workshopping it. Because we have this idea that all good ideas start out bad because they're not ready. They haven't been bounced off the user and the marketplace and the model and the competition and everything else. So there's this process of iterating an idea and built into Rebelbase is that I iterate a component of what I'm doing. So it's structured, it's not my whole idea. And then I have feedback coming from peers, mentors, and experts on what about this? We emphasize 
critical constructive criticism, hard questions, links and resources. The whole tool is designed around the idea that the first thing I do is not the point. Now, let's just stop there for a second because I can list a lot of ideas here, but I wanna make sure one or two translate really clearly. The first big idea here is if we switch the way we're doing things from this is your one chance to play Carnegie Hall to, you know what, this is jazz set number you know 663, it's always at one in the morning and you're gonna go up there and play your solo and then next time you're gonna go up and play it again. If we switch, we can talk about some of the pedagogical theory behind this because now it may sound strange. Wait, why is he talking about learning and school suddenly? Because we're talking about a process of learning by doing, whether you're a leader, an employee. We're not talking about giving you one chance to go and make your perfect experiments guided by Rebel Base. On the contrary, we're talking about giving you a place to try hypotheses, revise them constantly, get this input from a community that doesn't have to be the limited number of people that are in your set of cubicles or in your university or in your locale. By enabling that process, Sid, here's the amazing thing. Folks from personal backgrounds like mine, let's get the perfect score on the test, and cultures of face-saving, oh no, I only can tell my peers how great a job they did or I'm causing them to lose face, change their sense of what's being judged. They practice being judged not by how polished what they put out there is. You and I both teach in business schools. If I had a nickel for every polished and empty set of PowerPoint slides I've ever seen, and we're judging them instead by how much risk they're taking, by how willing they were to challenge the way things had been done and try things out. And you're literally being evaluated, not just by what you put out there, but by the constructive feedback that you're providing for others in the experience. And so we're moving from do it once, do it perfectly, which is by necessity algorithmic, Sid. The only way if you're doing it once to be successful is to follow a prescribed paint by numbers set of steps. But when you want to do anything worth doing, you made this great statement earlier and you said, what if I want to not do what I've done before? If I'm doing something that hasn't been done before, I have to draw freehand. I have to have an eraser. I can't just draw with one pen like someone who's done the same kind of character a thousand times. I want to give you more examples on this piece. And I feel as if we could spend the whole podcast on this piece. But we are constantly experimenting, but we do this research on change in mindset and large percentages, I think it's 80 plus percent from 14 countries, including every type of culture and educational environment, we're finding value and feel as if they have grown in their capacity to do things like derive solutions of their own, pitch new ideas to others, be flexible. We have a whole competency framework, which for example, ties critical thinking to opportunity recognition. Two things that are taught in whole different parts of a university. We do them together because if you're a rising leader in an organization that needs to innovate, you've got to both be looking for opportunities and thinking critically about the way things work now. And that's just one example. We're not just trying to encourage risk-taking, we're trying to encourage calculated experimentation where the point of our experiments is to learn what works, to learn from your users what they would adopt, to learn how you could then move to a larger group of users and get access to them through existing channels, to be able to bake in how that impacts your cost model or your competitive differentiation. All these things that we could teach them till we're blue in the face at a top business school, but if we want enough experiments to be launched, then we've got to make this stuff 
as accessible as editing a film has become for my 15-year-old niece. My first business, which failed in the Great Recession after I got out of Tuck and I launched it, was a business where we invested all our money in media manipulation equipment. We had a film and audio studio. Now, all of that's in the palm of my niece's hand and better. And what I dream of, and we constantly are ourselves iterating on and we're doing, but we're gonna do at even higher levels next year and the year after, is putting in the palm of your hand the capacity to try something new. And my single favorite piece of feedback over the last year is a student in the Middle East who said to his instructor who uses Rebel Base, and she works with entrepreneurs in her community, he said, you know, Professor, I used to have, Dalia Najjar is her name, Facebook open on my computer or my phone all the time. And now it's rebel base. And at least I feel like I'm doing something productive. That radically changes my relationship with technology from essentially being a guinea pig to being the person conducting the experiment. And the only way that a rising generation of talent is going to survive as that shelf life of solutions lowers and have jobs as jobs are replaced by bots and artificial intelligence and as everything needs to change is by building the practiced capacity to collaborate on generating new solutions, which brings me to that other point when I said it doesn't actually have to be something new. Lest I sound like I'm contradicting myself, often the new solution is something that we've already seen works well in another part of the world. But instead of having to create some franchise where we cookie cutter that out to everywhere, we need to make it work in local soil. And I often think of two of my favorite things in the world are pizza and the Beatles. And pizza was folks from Naples trying to make their dish with New York City water. And Sal and Carmine, whose pizza I grew up on, makes you strong. Shout out to Sal and Carmine's on 102nd and Broadway. Those guys had to use New York water, so they made something different. Just the way I've switched from single malt scotch to New York State rye. It's our water. The Beatles tried to sing like Chuck Berry. That's what they were trying to do. And they failed miserably. And on the way, got to create what I heard Paul McCartney sing in a duet with the video of John Lennon in Syracuse a, a month or so, a few months back. So it's by trying to do something old sometimes, but to do it for our local soil, our local conditions. I'm dealing with right now a potential road-based application to regenerative agriculture in Texas. So I don't literally mean soil, although that can be what I mean. But I'm talking about local conditions, local users, local budgets, local channels, local infrastructure. All the reasons, and we have folks at Tuck of Interagen and Trimble have done great work on what they call reverse innovation. And my only input is what Sebastian Crow likes to say in DACA. That's not the reverse at all. And Matthew Barzun similarly has argued, we can't even call this bottom up. It's the only way it's going to work for this era. We've got to ask that rickshaw driver in DACA. We've got to go to a place that has had major power constraints and is at the forefront of urban growth. 30 million people in that city competing for space. It's there where we do the innovation. That's no different than what Govindarajan and Trimble, what Vijay and Chris have said. What's different here and important is that we're not just helping folks use that as a strategy, but we've created a set of tools that make innovation accessible, practical, fun, and collaborative for everybody from those kids in Dhaka or Jerusalem all the way through to the executives and program managers in Brooklyn that I talked about earlier.
this point about failure, just to return to it for a moment, and we're not going to be able to get through even a fraction of what we could, <laughs> given uh, how rich the conversation is and the clock just keeps on ticking, unfortunately. So in a larger and more established company, failure is generally not seen as a career advancement. And so when you have, say, these Fortune 500 type companies that are interested in what you're doing and see this as a really valuable tool, they're going to need to figure out, and maybe you're going to have to help them because you can see this is going to happen even if they are not going to realize that, which is that you're going to give people tools to be innovative, to create, to experiment, and many of those things are not going to work. And if they have a culture where it's just not seen as a positive, even if it's pigeonholed into this kind of experimentation project or idea, if it's seen as something that's not going to advance your career because of a deep, deep culture in an organization. And it's a very common one, as you know. It might not lead to the result that you want. I would predict that most senior executives or even middle executives, mid-level or upper level, that they fully appreciate how the culture that they put in place and maybe has been in place for decades and decades, how this makes it more difficult for people to do what they want them to do. I mean, I'll give you one example from a few years ago when I was working with a top management team and the CEO wanted me to work, especially with the team, because they weren't coming out with enough new ideas. The way he put it is they were asking for permission too much. So I'm working with them. We're doing a lot of different exercises and a lot of open, kind of honest discussion. What they ended up telling me, and it took them a while to be comfortable enough with me to tell me, is every time we've gone to the CEO, our boss, with projects, with ideas, he comes back and is not open to it. And so we learned that we better ask for permission or else we're going to get hammered down. And the CEO is thinking they're asking for permission. I mean, this requires some psychology work with the team, kind of one-on-one -on -one to understand how they behave without even knowing how they behave. But the broader point is about this wall that exists in established companies. It's well-intentioned within companies. It's logical. It makes sense. It has big upside. But they don't realize that they have in place the seeds of the failure of the project. So this is so well done, what you've just done. And I want to take it almost to a much smaller example, which takes us to where I think we need to go with those companies. Let's just say you're talking to a younger sibling or your kids or someone in a very sort of family context where you really are telling them, like that CEO, you know what? I want you to make your own decision or to a younger employee on your team. Mm -hmm. Come on, I don't want to give you the answers, you do it. And then they come back with their answers. And what are we all tempted to do? No, little brother, no new member of my team. That's not what I wanted you to do. And then they're left saying, okay, he said he wanted me to experiment and come up with anything, but clearly he didn't. Now, part of the answer to this is as old as Bill Onken and managing management time, which is that we need to create the levels of risk. We need to be clear about the levels of freedom to experiment we're given with any given project. But that doesn't take away your point that sometimes we are bedeviled because when something is particularly strategically critical, then we're most afraid of getting it wrong, which is a paradox because we're most in need of experimentation. It's what I call the Kodak moment, right? And I don't mean the moment when you capture your family smiling. I mean, 1991, when Bill Gates walked into the meeting of the Buffett group and said Kodak is toast, but there was four years of fat fishing off of film ahead of it. And everybody else was saying, no, invest in this. What would it have taken for those execs in Rochester to make the change then? 
while the getting was going to be so good for another four to five years. That's really hard when, goodness, not just your executives, but your investors are incentivizing you on quarterly performance. Here's the place, and maybe this is just sort of the framing for a deeper conversation. Actually, would you mind using that time turner tool that you have and just stopping time for about 15 minutes so we can discuss this, Sid? I'm just kidding. So let me very quickly, (laughs) since you probably, you've got powers, but time stopping may not be one of them. Let me just frame this, and it's certainly something we could pick up on. What we have learned is that we need to change like a sporting event. When we Mm -hmm. want to change behavior, we change how you win. We change rules. And actually, um, Michael Lewis does incredible stuff with his podcast on referees and rule changes and whether it's fighting in hockey or access to the bandwidth for high frequency trading in Flash Boys, how we set up the rules matters. And so if you're a corporate, we need to give you the rules, but also the mechanisms. And I'm going to just give one example and we can pick up on this at some other time if you want. It's, for example, if I define for you, the employee that's jealous of your career, if I define a context where you are rewarded for experimentation, where you can win a competition, distinguish yourself through some kind of thought leadership activity. And I make it clear that this is not a cannibalization threat. And let me bracket the cannibalization point in two seconds. That's what we're doing, for example, inside a large public-private organization right now, where these are rising employees who are doing things like, so I have one of these sleek looking white Tesla chargers in the woods a few feet from me, but they're trying to ask, what would we have to do to make EV charging accessible in lower income parts of New York state? This is one team working right now. And that's not necessarily what they would be rewarded for taking that risk in the main part of their work. But in this context where there's an opportunity to win a prize, they're getting rewarded for the risks they take. We've created an arena. Folks love to quote the old Teddy Roosevelt thing about the man in the arena. But what I think is often missing from that idea is that which arena, if the main arena is one where if I do something new, then I'm threatening the thing that you as an employee at this corporation have known how to do for years and you have to get retraining and maybe lose your job. I'm just threatening you and that's not going to fly. But if we create these alternative arenas It's no different than the old skunk works idea, but applied much more broadly. We create different types of arenas, whether it's an accelerator or an innovation lab or a competitive space or a hackathon. And in those arenas, we have a space where experimentation is valued based on certain legit tests and rewarded. Mm -hmm. Then those Mm -hmm. become places where I can distinguish myself to the risk I take without necessarily having to threaten everyone around me in my day job. That's just a starting point for that discussion. Right. Yeah. And that's a conversation that has to happen. And people need to believe that it's real. You know, you're creating the arena, you're creating a little bit different rules. They got to believe that it's real. And there's history. You know, people remember how others have been treated and they remember how other things have happened. But I think it's the right way to think about it. But there still is an onus of responsibility on the company itself. In your case, your partner, your client to set the, using your words, the rules in the arena and to truly be authentic about that, to be believed about that. Right. And our job is to make sure that the people who subscribe to Rebel Base get ahead right? There's a guy I know who's retired from his business, but he incentivized his people to create something new. And then they had skin in the game. And he said, they created his new lines of business when the old ones were declining, right? It's simple, multiple S-curve thinking. He did that in his business. My job is to make sure that when you subscribe to Rebel Base, I enable you to set yourselves apart with the skills you build 
the connections, the de-siloing that you achieve and the innovations you launch. And by doing that, right, and note this, there's all three because the innovations are more longitudinal and there's more of a funnel applied to those. But if everyone going to the mouth of that funnel is making interdepartmental connections and learning and building those skills and distinguish themselves as leaders in measurable ways, which is what we spend our time measuring, then I get to say to you, you know what? You're attracting and motivating talent. You're breaking down silos. And then by the way, you have new innovations to brag about, Mm -hmm. which allow you to get past all your heuristics that would keep you from innovating that we just talked about to see the good results of it and then distinguish your organization, which gets you to subscribe to us next year at a higher level. Then you're at Rebel Universe. (laughs) I've always said to people that are trying to do things differently in an organization and they tell me, well, my boss doesn't think this way. Says, okay, you got to do your job, whatever that boss expects you to do and do it at a high level. But then you could do this other thing, whatever that is. And if it works, you have a story to tell because people love to hear success stories. That's something that could come out of what you're describing as well. One last little thing, Sid, the role of the boss is changing. I mean, Ed Zitron is very polemical about this, but he's great if you read his blog on saying, look, the old boss who succeeds by taking credit for other people's work because they're all sitting there in the office, that person is under threat right now. I think the rise of hybrid work may create less, I'm the boss, I approve what you do because I want to take credit and look good and more performance-driven cultures of the kind that you were referencing at Amazon. So I actually think we have a major opportunity coming out of this global tragedy of the pandemic because it led people to be more remote and more able to compete based on their work in some industries than just on what their boss liked, which whether it's your boss or your professor is the single worst way to judge performance. A few years ago, I wrote an article, I think it was for BBC, on the end of middle management. It was, of course, it had no shortage of hyperbole in it. But the upshot was that if the job of the manager is to supervise and approve and ensure conformity, there's no space for that anymore. It's not going to work and it's on the way out. Now, it's going to take a long time for that to be totally on the way out, but it's on the way out. We're in the risk of getting close to one of the longest podcasts I've ever done, which is a testament to you, Alejandro, and some of the ideas you've been sharing. But I do have one last question for you that I'd like to wrap things up with. And that is kind of a advice, but a particular flavor of advice. That's advice to yourself. If you could magically go back in time to when you were, say, I don't know, 20 years old, and you could lean over to the 21-year-old Alejandro Crawford and say, you know, if there's one thing you want to know or think about or do or not do, something you understand that you've come to understand now that your 20-year-old self could not or would not have fully or even at all appreciated or understood, what might that bit of advice be? No that if you're big wave surfing, it's about the wave, not just the surfer. When I graduated from Tuxid, I started a business in a contracting, let's say a dying industry. And I had fancy real option valuations. I later worked with the guy who lent us our first loan. He said, we never lent to startups. I had gotten out of Tuck with this formidable skill set, but that was just me as a surfer. I was not paying enough attention to the waves. And I think, especially when we're talking about innovation, yes, it's about us and what we see is broken, but that's only part of it. It's also about the openings to make a shift. In some ways, this is an old idea. It's the innovator's dilemma, all this stuff. But the advice to me would be pay attention to which waves you're riding 
In that business that I launched out of tech, we ended up pivoting. We went from being in the music recording industry to the digital agency space, which was a growing space. But it's to understand the wave. And this applies to the corporates you're talking about. You, know, you talk about the end of middle management. If I could end with one thought, it's advice not just to me, it's advice to any young talent today, which is that the shelf life of what you think will be the good jobs is decreasing. And this is the Federal Reserve. I was part of the study where that was one of the things that came out of it. You can't just assume you'll be fine as a pharmacist, right? A few years ago, that was just like a great job to get. Now pharmacists assume disruption, assume change. And instead of learning an algorithmic skill well, or even a strategic management skill, or as Sarasvati says, you're picking paths, maybe adding one or two, instead become a person who has the skill set to evaluate changing conditions and collaborate on new applications and new solutions. Become that person person who is, instead of very good at one athletic skill, who is highly athletic and adaptable in changing conditions. Prepare yourself for the jobs you thought were important and even the industries you thought were never going to go to become ghost industries. And in many ways, start looking about whether they already are and yourself start becoming an expert. And I know this sounds crazy, even leading thinking in where the puck is going with the problems that interest you to solve. Yes, of course, you got to get through that interview and get that salary. And I recognize we have a generation that struggles to take risks because of the cost of housing, healthcare, and educational debt. I recognize all of that. At the same time, if you want to be a leader in what's going forward, you've got to get practice skating to where the puck is going. Focus mostly on that. And then when the puck comes at you, make sure you know how to hit it back. Alejandro Juarez Crawford, thank you so much. What a great and rich conversation. I often wrap up my podcast by saying how the time flies by and I wish we had more time. It's doubly true today. Thank you. This will be a lot of food for thought for lots and lots of people. Sid, it's a distinct pleasure. I got a time turner I'm going to send you, and then that won't be an issue anymore. <laughs> I'd like one of those. Take care. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SIDCast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please consider giving us a five-star review and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.